a big clap. Thank you very much. Good morning. I'm going to do something I've never done before, which goes very against my character. I'm going to preach to you a sermon I've not written. Um, Jess is... <laughs> oh, it's more exciting than I thought. Jess says, um, as Joe brought that song, she said, there are some of us here who know we're a child of God, but who are not experiencing it. And there's some of us here who don't actually even believe that we're children of God at all. But the Bible says that if you responded to Jesus in repentance of faith, in that very moment, you're adopted as his child. And I want to talk to us about three lies that we can easily believe that stop us from experiencing our identity as a child of God. As I start, I want to encourage you, you're going to probably, if you've been here any time at all, you'll know all this stuff. You'll hear this stuff said all the time. Don't assume that you're believing the truth. Be really open to what the Holy Spirit says to you. know, for years, I really, really struggled to believe as a child of God. For years, I really hated, you know, father-heart-focused stuff. And actually, in more recent times, God's made me realize the reason I was really kind of struggling with father-heart God, father God stuff is because I didn't really believe the truth that he'd forgiven me. I didn't really believe God could love me in that way. Because even though I knew the Bible says all my sins are taken away as far as the east from the west, I wasn't really believing it. It's surprisingly easy to know something and not to really believe it. So now as we look at some lies in what the Bible says, the truths, just have your heart open to the Holy Spirit to actually Sometimes you think that. And then the Holy Spirit saying, but here is the truth. And I want you to see this as an equipping, because actually if we believe lies, often it's not in one moment they get dealt with. Often actually it's a battle, day by day by day. It's realizing, how a minute, I'm believing a lie here. I'm going to take hold of the truth. I'm going to preach it to myself. I'm going to declare it. I'm going to sing it. I'm going to pray it until I actually believe it. You don't wait until you feel something to believe it. You need to believe it, and then you're going to feel it. And today we're going to believe the truth God says about us, and that's going to help us to experience our identity as the children of God. I've no doubt there are all manner of lies we can believe that stop us believing we're the children of God, but there are three, I think, maybe a particular prominent we're going to work through. I think one of the key lies that stops us believing we're really a child of God, which means one whom God has adopted, their son whom he delights over, he sings songs over, the Bible says. Often we don't believe that because we're just so conscious of what we've done and we can't believe that God can love us in light of what we've done. We know the Bible says we're forgiven, but actually we just think, yeah, but I did that thing and God can't love me. Or we just I do all these little things and this low-level kind of constant feeling of guilt is there of, yeah, I know it says that, but it can't really be true. How could the God who made everything, who's seen everything I've done, who knows those things I've done that no one else knows what I've done, how could he really love me? How could he really adopt me as his son? Let me show you how he can do that. We're going to go to Romans 5. Romans 5, Paul is reassuring people, we had a reading from it all over actually, reassuring people that because they've been saved now in the present, they can be certain they will be saved on judgment day when they stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And part of how he explains this, he explains the nature of what has happened to them when they became a Christian. He says, this is verses 12 to 21 in Romans 5, he says, God views all people as in one of two groups. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. And each of these groups have these figureheads, these people at the top. There's Adam on the one hand, the, the first guy who was created, the first person to rebel against God, the one who received the sentence of condemnation and death and punishment and separation from God. But on the other side, there's Christ, the Son of God who lived a perfect life, who died, who rose again. He says we're all in one of these groups, and when we're in these groups, it's the actions of the figurehead which affect us. So if you're in Adam, you're affected by Adam's actions. If you're in Christ, you're affected by Christ's actions. The actions of the one affect the many. 
It's a bit like when you're back in school, you would think back to uh, primary school, as it was for me particularly, where um, someone would do something wrong, no one would own up to doing it, and so everybody got in trouble until someone owned up. The actions of the one were affecting the many. And then eventually, if someone did own up, even if it wasn't really there, them who'd done it, they would get in trouble and everyone else would be let off. The actions of the one were affecting the many. Paul tells us that God relates to us as humanity in that way. And he tells us that we start in Adam. Because we're in Adam, we receive that sentence of condemnation, of death, ultimately of separation from God. But then he tells us that what happens when we put our faith in Christ is not that we have a bit of a kind of spring clean and those, those rough edges are kind of smoothed off, the very worst bits are taken away. Or you get your one chance to get clean, but then after that you get a bit dirty again. He says, no, no, you were in Adam, but you come out of Adam and you're placed into Christ. And if you're in Christ groups, you get everything that belongs to Christ. You get, it says, justification. That means you stand before God with a right legal standing. He says, not guilty. He says, you've done everything you should have done. You've done nothing you should not have done. He chooses to look at you according to what Christ has done. He doesn't remember the stuff you did. He doesn't remember what Adam did. He looks at what his son did, and he credits that to you. And so Paul tells us, as one trespass of Adam over here led to condemnation for all men, all people in his group, so one act of righteousness, Jesus' act, leads to justification and life for all men, all those in his group. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. That's where we are in Adam. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. In Christ, we are made righteous. That means we're perfect, we're pure, we're accepted by God. And the most important thing to get with this is this is not a kind of hopping in and out thing. It's not that you respond to Jesus and you're in Christ but then you have a few bad days and you're back in Adam. And then you have a good day, you're back in Christ. But then you feel a bit bad again because stuff you've done, you're back in Adam. You feel it hopping in and out and in and out. It's not like that. When you're in Christ, you are in him forever. You cannot hop back out. You cannot be taken out. The enemy can't keep you out. Your actions can't keep you out. You are in Christ forever and ever. That means that every moment of every day, you are justified. You're in a right legal standing before God because of what Christ has done. Or at the beginning of chapter 5, Paul says it in a different way. He says there, we've been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace. Once there was hostility. There was anger. But now there's peace. And he says, through him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. He says, what happened when you became a Christian is not just that you had that little spring clean, and since then you've got a bit messy. Not just that you've got your one-time chance of forgiveness then, but now you've got to work really hard or be really good to stop it. No, no, you had access into this grace in which you stand. Now, the grace of God is his, his gift, his favor, his goodness to those who are utterly undeserving of it, utterly unworthy, which is all of us apart from him. And when we're placed in his grace, that means we live in this constant downpour, this constant shower of his undeserved favor. It's a bit like an Eeyore cloud, an Eeyore, Winnie the Pooh, who uh, always has this little cloud of rain and storms and stuff walking around him. It can be sunny and bright and glorious everywhere, but over Eeyore, it's wet and dark and miserable. We have an Eeyore cloud, but it's not an Eeyore cloud of misery and rain and storms. It's an Eeyore cloud of the grace of God. Every moment of every day, Whatever you do, however well you're doing, however badly you're doing, if you respond to Jesus, you stand in grace. He pours out undeserved favor upon you. This means that it's impossible for the things we do wrong to separate us from God. Paul was saying, Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation, not one bit of condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, out of Adam, into Christ. It's literally impossible to be a Christian and to be under the condemnation of God. 
Friends, your sins do not stop God from loving you. Your sins do not stop you from being a child of God. And when you feel like they do, you need to take hold of what God has said. Don't listen to what the enemy says. Don't listen to what your head says. Don't listen to what the world says. Listen to what God says. God says, I'm in Christ. And all in Christ get justification and life. God says, I'm standing in grace. He's going to do me good no matter what. God says there is no condemnation. Fight with this. Battle with this. Holy Spirit, we pray when we've believed the lie that you don't love us because of what we've done, when we've believed the lie that actually we can't really be your children because of what we've done, we pray right now, come and break that lie over us. We speak to guilt in this room, dwelling in people in Christ, and we say, go in the name of Jesus. Would that waterfall, that shower of grace fall upon us? Would we know there is no condemnation because of it in Christ Jesus? Amen. That's one huge lie. We can so easily, can subtly creep in and stop us experiencing our adoption. The lie of we've done the wrong thing. But there's also the lie, or kind of the flip side, of we've not done enough of the good stuff. So this isn't I've done bad things that separate me from God. This is I've not done enough of the good stuff. I'm just not the kind of person. And I think loads of us live with that feeling of I'm just not a very good Christian. I know I'm meant to do this and that and the other. I know I'm meant to pray and read my Bible. I'm meant to help people and all this stuff. And we just think, I'm just not a good Christian. And it's not that we're really conscious of things we've done wrong. We're really conscious of things we haven't done. And we think, I know God's not holding the things I've done wrong against me, but there's nothing in me to make him like me. I'm not doing enough stuff to really make him love me, really make him like me. And we just feel a bit like if people really knew what we were like, really knew how little we read the Bible, or how little we prayed, or how little we helped people, whatever it might be, we think they wouldn't really like me, and certainly God can't really like me. Let's go to another Paul's letters. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 5. Paul talking to a church that's in a bit of a mess and a complicated letter. He's defending his own apostleship at this point, and he begins to talk to them about this message uh, that he is an apostle as a kind of a preacher of the gospel is bringing. And in verse um, 21, he says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew sin, talking about Jesus, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He talks about this incredible exchange, this, this handover, this change that has happened. He said that he made him, this is Jesus, who knew no sin, who was utterly perfect, who had never done anything, anything wrong. He made him to be sin. Jesus so took upon himself our sin that it's like he became sin. So that on the cross, as the Father, God the Father looked at God the Son, our sin was bearing upon him. And so God the Father's Justice, his wrath, his punishment, his anger against our sin was placed on him. All of it was placed there. But that was so that in him, in Christ, again remember, we might become the righteousness of God. Not we might get a bit of the righteousness of God. Not we might get a bit of a kind of spring clean. Not we might get a head start to help us be better people. We might become the righteousness of God. That means that the perfection of God. Friends, if you're in Christ, if you respond to Jesus, you are already looks at as if you've done all the things you should do. You have become the righteousness of Christ. Everything that Jesus did, all the good stuff, is credited to your account. God's not saved you to zero and then said, come on, work up some points from there. He said, here are all the points from my son. He's not sitting around saying, well, I'll really love you when you spend that hour every morning reading your Bible and praying. 
I'll really love you when you've given all this time to serving these people and to doing this stuff. I'll really love you when people realize what an amazing person you are. He's not saying that. He's saying, I love you as I've given the righteousness, the perfection of Christ to you. He looks at you and says, you have done everything you should have done as well as not having done anything you should not have done. That's what it means to be justified, to be righteous. Friends, God isn't disappointed with you. He says in the Old Testament that he will take away all the judgments against us and he will rejoice over us. He will sing over us. He delights in us. It says in Isaiah that God is is excited about you as a groom is excited about his bride. When the bride walks down the aisle, the groom isn't there thinking, well, how much has she done for me recently? And is she going to wash the dishes? And is she going to do this, that, and the other when we're living in our home together? That's not the kind of excitement he has. None of that matters at that moment. He's excited because his heart overflows. God's heart overflows with love for us, irrespective of how much or how little we feel we've done. So here again, here's a place to battle. If you've believed the lie that actually I've just not done enough good stuff for God to really love me, for me to really be a child of God, you need to take hold of the truth. In him, you've become the righteousness of Christ. In him, all of his good, all that he's done is credited to you. You've done everything you need to do and more. He's not waiting for you to do more. He's not disappointed. He's not fed up. He's waiting to embrace you as his child. Holy Spirit, we pray where we believe this way, where we have believed that we've just not done enough for you to love us. We believe there's all these things we're expected to do as a good Christian, and we really don't meet the mark. We're really not a good Christian. Therefore, you don't love us. Therefore, you haven't adopted us, and we can't be your child. We say we'd come and break that light off us. Would we know that in Christ we are righteous? That all the good that Christ has done is credited to our account. That we're not on zero. We have all the points we need. That you have made us perfect. You look at us as if we've done everything that we should have done. Amen. Friends, it's another truth to battle with. When you do as I do, I'm not a morning person when you can't get out of bed in the morning and you go to work and you think, I wish I'd spent more time with God this morning, it's good to think, I wish I had, because we get stuff out of that. But don't think, God's a bit annoyed with me already. It's only 8.30. Think, God delights in me because the righteousness of Christ is credited to me. It's freeing, it's liberating. And then the final thing, and there are many we've talked about, the final thing I think is often key in stopping us from believing that God loves us as his children is our life experiences and sufferings. We read the Bible says, God's adopted you, God delights in you, God loves you, and we look at our lives and we say, but it's so painful, it's so difficult. I, I've been longing and praying for this thing to happen, and it hasn't happened. This healing hasn't come, this situation hasn't changed, this, all this, that, and the other. God, I just struggle to see how can you be a father who loves and delights in me when life is like that. That's a really common thing. All of us will have seasons of life like that. You might be in a season like that now. You might have the one particular thing in your life, which all the time just makes you think, I know the Bible says he loves me, but would it really be like this if he loved me? And the world comes along and says, your God isn't really that good, because actually this doesn't look that great, does it? And God says you can't do that. Oof, can't be that God loves you. We believe the lie that what's happening around us disproves the love that God has for us. But again, that's a total lie. We go back to Romans 8. What's fascinating, when Paul talks about adoption being made God's children in Romans 8, he talks about four different blessings we receive as the children of God, and the last one is the blessing of suffering. Yippee, we all cheer. He says, your children of God, verse 17, provided we suffer with him, 
in order that we may also be glorified with him. He says to be a child of God means to suffer. In fact, you've kind of got to suffer to be a child of God. When you suffer as a child of God, it's not something going wrong. It's not someone else getting the kind of power and getting control. It's not things going off course. It's not God saying, well, actually, I'm a bit displeased with you, so you're going to suffer a bit right now. No, no, when you suffer as a child of God, you're walking the normal path of a child of God. In this age, in this life, as a child of God, one of the promises you get is that you will suffer which actually is an incredible encouragement. Because it means when we suffer, we know it doesn't mean that God doesn't love us. When we suffer, it's a reminder that we are a child of God. He says we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. This is purposeful, in order that. There's a purpose to this. You suffer to lead to glory, just as Jesus suffered to lead to glory. In some mysterious way, for some mysterious reason, this is how God works. That suffering is his route to glory. Jesus had to come and live and suffer horrifically, but then be raised to life, ascend to be with the Father, go to be in glory. So we too live our lives and there will be suffering. But it's purposeful, it's leading to glory. Paul elsewhere says it's light and momentary. He says every suffering we experience in this life as a child of God is preparing for us a weight of glory. It's doing something even when we really can't see it. But in Romans 8, Paul knows that it's hard to believe. In the midst of such pain, in the midst of such difficulty, in the midst of such disappointment maybe or frustration, he knows that's hard to believe. And so verses 18 to 30, he gives us three reasons we can know beyond knowing beyond knowing that when we suffer as a child of God, God still loves us. First, he talks about the future. This is verses 18 to 25. He says, we know we're children of God when we suffer because we suffer waiting for the future glory. We know what is coming. I consider, he says, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed for us. He talks about the creation, eagerly waiting, longing, when is all the brokenness going to be taken away? When is every tear going to be wiped away? When is all this suffering going to end? But it waits in hope. It knows there's hope because because Jesus has risen from the dead, he's conquered death, he's conquered brokenness, there will be a day when the suffering is taken away. The sure and certain promise and hope that there'll be a day when God wipes our tears away. A day when all the pains end, that is what can sustain us and help us. That is what can help us know that even though this is the most horrific situation, God loves me. Because he's taken me to something better. He's moving me forward. That's a future reason. And then he gives a present reason. He says in verses 26 and 27, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So he's saying in these situations, the suffering is just too much, and we kind of want to pray, but we can't even think of the words to say because it's so painful, it's so difficult. He says, it's okay, because the Holy Spirit prays for you. Friends, when you suffer, the Holy Spirit, so the one who lives inside of you, is the one who probably knows your pain better than you know it, and the one who is God and so knows God better than we can ever know, he intercedes, he bridges the gap, he prays on our behalf. That's the most astounding thing. When you suffer, when you feel that you're being abandoned by God, actually God himself is praying for you. And it's not really clear. Is Paul saying this is something that we're aware of or not? Maybe it's both and. Maybe sometimes this happens and we're not kind of aware of it happening. He's doing it for us. Sometimes it has happened. Angela Ken mentioned that. I've had experiences where this thing, real kind of soul turmoil and real pain, I've just found myself making these noises, like expressing this deep pain. I think that might be the Spirit praying. I didn't know what to say. But as I express this pain, the Spirit is praying for me. 
I can know in that moment that God still loves me regardless of what's happening because he is praying for me. There's a future reassurance, there's a present reassurance, and there's a past reassurance. These are probably some of our most famous, uh, most favorite and famous verses, verse 28, Romans 8. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. You think, what a wonderful promise. Everything that happens in my life works together for good. But then the thing happens, you think, it doesn't feel that great. How can I really know that God is working this to my good? How can I have confidence in that, promises, that promise? Paul goes on, we know it. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. How do I know God's always working everything for good, even when it's so painful? Because I look back at what he's already done. I look back at the fact he foreknew me, which in biblical terms means kind of he looked ahead of time and he set his love upon you. He said, that one, I'm going to love them. I'm going to shower my love upon them and they will know me. And those of me foreknows, he predestines. He uh, kind of plans out for them to be conformed to the image of his son. This is astounding, in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. When God foreknew you before the foundation of the world, when God picked you out of the crowd, predestined you to become a Christian, the reason was that you might become uh, conformed to the image of Christ so that Christ had many brothers. Basically, God picked you to be a brother of Jesus. Before you, anything existed, God picked you to be a brother of Jesus. That's how you can know that when you suffer, God still loves you. And those who be predestined, he also called. So if God planned that you come into this relationship, he brought this call to you, not just to kind of, you know, you call your dog in the park, it may or may not come back, let's see. It's a call which is like a boomerang. It brings someone back. It's a, a call which brings life to our heart, which took hold of us. And those whom he called, he also justified. He said, you have done everything you should have done and nothing you should not have done. Totally not guilty, totally accepted. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's the sure and certain promise of the future thing. It goes full circle, actually. We will be glorified. We will be with him in glory. All our imperfections, all our brokenness, all the pains taken away, we will be with him. He says we can know beyond knowing beyond knowing that even in the most terrific circumstances, God loves us as his children. Suffering can never disprove the love that God has for his children because we know the future he's got for us. We know that right now he's praying for us and we look back at what he's already done for us. And as we had that reading earlier, if he's done all this, how can we believe he won't do this? And the band could come back up at this point, please. Father, we pray where we've experienced, we've believed this lie, that our life experiences disprove your love for us. I pray where the enemy has told us that you don't love us because of the things we're going through. Or even people around us have questioned your love for us, your goodness for us, or just we have. I pray Right now, that lie would be broken in the name of Jesus. I pray that we would know that you love us. That is our calling as the children of God to suffer. And I pray just for those right now who are hurting, who even as I've talked about suffering and hurting, have just felt that in their heart. Those who are heartbroken, those who are carrying such deep pains and hurts. Oh Lord God, I pray right now, Holy Spirit, would you come and minister peace and love. Come reveal the truth. Come quietly comfort. Friends, and when we're in pain, the things that are happening, God doesn't say get over it. He doesn't say we shouldn't be feeling it. Emotions are there to show us what's going on. They're good uh, things to show us what's going on, help us understand. 
And actually God wants to come there and comfort and help. And sometimes take the sting out of the pain by saying it is horrible and difficult, but I love you and I'm with you. Holy Spirit, I pray with you do that right now. Take the sting out of some of our pain by us knowing that you're with us and you love us. Should we just stand if you're able, or really engage with God however you want to, whether that's standing, sitting, lying down, whatever it might be. It might be that Joe might sing that over us again. We'll, goodness knows, we'll see what will happen. And we've got a good amount of time now just for the Holy Spirit to work in us. And I'm in faith that even as we've looked at God's Word, some of those lies, which we may never have believed we could believe, we've realized, oh man, <laughs> I'm believing that lie. And so this is going to be a chance for us to respond in our hearts and say, God, I'm, I'm sorry I've believed the lie, and I'm taking hold of the truth. It might be a chance for you to think, how am I going to battle about this tomorrow morning? Where am I going to stick that Bible verse so I see it time and time again I can battle with it? What songs which remind me of my identity am I going to be singing this week to remind me of who I am? Let's just invite the Holy Spirit to come and um, move. I'm then going to read in Romans 8 and I'm going to leave it in you guys' hands. Oh God, we do thank you for just the astounding truth that we are your children. That you love us that you sing songs over us, you rejoice over us with gladness, you exult over us in your love, that you are as excited about us as a groom is excited about his bride. Thank you that you're not angry at us for our sins, they don't separate us from you. Thank you you're not fed up with us for not doing well enough because you've credited Christ's righteousness to us and thank you that nothing that happens in our life can disprove your love for us. And Holy Spirit, now we say, oh, come do your work. Come reveal lies in our hearts. Come restore where the enemy has taken away. Come bring truth. Would your word now settle in our hearts? Would we be strengthened and equipped to battle and to fight and to take hold of what is ours and to live in it, we pray. Come minister to us, we pray. Here's how Paul ends Romans 8. Having said all these things about who we are as Christians, he speaks of the confidence we have. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.